0: It's the hardest thing in the world. The ability to tame your expectations with that, whether it is Twitter followers or book sales, is so difficult. I mean, the book's been out for about two and a half weeks as you and I are recording this right now. It has sold significantly more than I expected. But as soon as that happened, my expectations just shifted up to the next level. Oh, what if it could sell this much or this many? What if I can match the sales of this other book? If there's anything that I feel like I am qualified to discuss about, it's because I acknowledge that is the case. And I think if we can all go out of our way to realize stuff like that, that if you are to get a promotion, a raise, you do well in the stock market, whatever it is in your life, you have some sort of win at that during that win, you stop to think about your expectations and how can you suppress them? Because it is the gap between your expectations and your results that is actually going to make you happier. That's what you are actually striving for.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger, but you knew that. It is a great day to be alive. I hope the sun is shining or the moon is shining and that the air has a crisp fall feel to it. You're outside, maybe got out that corduroy vest you've been wanting to break out, that autumnal vest that goes so well with the plaid that you've had stashed away since, oh, right about the time the world closed down. But today, you get to break it out. You get to go for a walk and hear some leaves crunch under your feet as you stroll and you listen and you contemplate with me and your fellow crazy money listeners about the role of money in your life and how you can be the master of money to help you live the kind of life you want to lead. Along those lines, my friends, I have an amazing guest for you this week. His name is Morgan Housel. He's a very well-known financial writer formerly of The Motley Fool and The Wall Street Journal. He is now at a place called The Collaborative Fund, where he gets paid to write. And what he's written most recently is a book called The Psychology of Money. I have read it. It is fantastic. And it is very much in line with the kind of things that we talk about here on Crazy Money. We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want to say hello to the listeners out there who have said hello this week. Among them, Aaron Joy. Hello. Nice to hear from you again. My old friend, Eileen Brennan, thank you so much for continuing to listen. Glad you liked the episode with my pops. Yes, that was a good one. Mr. Blake Chanley. you know who you are. And Fred Bruce, so happy to hear from you. By the way, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this with everyone, but Fred and many listeners have told me that Crazy Money is the first podcast they've ever listened to. And that's very flattering to me. You heard about it from a friend or a colleague or an alumnus from your school, in which case this was our high school that informed Fred about this. And so I'm flattered that you're breaking into the new podcast world through crazy money. Here's a few rules. You always have to rate and review the podcast that you listen to. And you always have to listen to my podcast first or your podcast app won't work. And that's clearly a lie, but that's what I'm telling you. So I'm happy you're here. Also finding out information about one's audience is very difficult because the podcast world is very fragmented Most people listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts. It's like 60 to 70% of the market, depending upon where they get it. There's like Google, Spotify, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. And the list gets longer and longer. There's a very long tail of where people can listen to podcasts. And so it's hard to find out data about your audience. But one thing that keeps coming up is people keep telling me, I listen to you while I take a walk. That just feels like a very middle-aged thing to me. (laughs) You know, like I do it too. That's when I listen to most of my podcasts or my books on tape. But it's not like you hear a bunch of like 20-year-olds going, yeah, man, I dig your podcast. It's so cool. I listen to it when I take a walk. it's like, don't your joints still work? Don't your knees still have lubrication in them? Why are you not running? Why are you not playing lacrosse on the week? I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, hope you're all enjoying your walks or your carpool or walking your dogs. Hope it's going great. I'm happy you're listening to me whenever, wherever you can. I appreciate your time. Let's talk about Morgan Housel. You know, we talk about so many things on this podcast about understanding how the way our brains work sometimes lead us down the wrong path when it comes to the way we think about money. There's a lot of these things. There's the relative nature of wealth. For example, human beings don't measure their wealth in the absolute. They measure it relative to their neighbors. And many people, research has confirmed, would rather have, for example, these are all just illustrative numbers, they are not the actual numbers. People would rather live in a place where they make $100,000 a year and everybody else makes $75,000 a year than to make $150,000 in a world where everybody else makes $175,000. Now, clearly they'd be better off from an absolute standpoint in the second scenario, but that's not how they view it. They'd rather be relatively affluent than absolutely affluent. And this is just one of the big tricks that money plays on our brains. We also have this trick that is related to the hedonic treadmill, the hedonic treadmill, as in hedonism, means that we get used to whatever level of affluence that we have. We also get used to the bad things in our lives. And basically, if you win the lottery, it's going to be great for three months. And then at a certain point, you're going to be like, eh, this is just kind of the new normal. And in his new book, The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness, Morgan Housel breaks down all these different tricks and helps us understand how to be better investors based on the realities of the way our brains work. No, this is not an investing show, but he approaches investing not with the scientific rules, the mathematical rules. He approaches it from a behavioral perspective, and I think it's very, very relevant to the things we talk about here on Crazy Money. Let me tell you a little bit more about Morgan Housel. He is a partner at the Collaborative Fund and a former columnist at the Motley Fool and the Wall Street Journal. He is a two-time winner of the Best in Business Award from the Society of American Business Editors and Writers, winner of the New York Times Sydney Award, and a two-time finalist for the Gerald Loeb Award for Distinguished Business and Financial Journalism. His work was featured in the Best Business Writing, published by Columbia Journalism Review. As the back cover of his new book, The Psychology of Money, reads... Doing well with money isn't necessarily about what you know. It's about how you behave, and behavior is hard to teach even to really smart people. And if you're listening to Crazy Money, you're definitely a really smart people, and I'm glad you're here because Morgan's book is an elegant summation of many of the things I want to discuss on this show, and I know you're going to learn something today, and you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here, my friends, is my conversation with Morgan Housel. Morgan Housel, welcome to Crazy Money.
0: Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Morgan, you're a well-known financial writer, but also work at a place called the Collaborative Fund. What kind of work do you all do there?
0: Well, let me break that into two parts because I can tell you what the Collaborative Fund does and I can tell you what I do. They're a little bit different and I'll explain that. The Collaborative Fund is a venture capital private equity firm where we invest in private companies, mainly startups and young companies. With the idea that the companies that are doing good in the world have this ability to make the world a little bit of a better place is part of their business model. That's part of their economic competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. That Companies that are doing good are going to attract the most loyal customers, the best employees, et cetera. That's kind of our investing thesis, how we invest. But what I do is actually a little bit different. Even though I'm at the collaborative fund, all of my job is writing and speaking. I've been an investment writer for my entire career. That's all I've ever done, 14 years now. And really what it is, is just kind of waving my hands out there so that people know what Collaborative Fund is doing. And I never want to write something that you would think is marketing for the Collaborative Fund because Mm -hmm. no one wants to read marketing. What I want to do is write things that hopefully people think are interesting and might share with other people that just kind of gets our name and brand awareness out there in a greater degree.
1: What a cool job.
0: It's fun. It's not bad.
1: Yeah. I mean, you get to do cutting edge investment and you get to be the creative guy at the shop as opposed to the spreadsheet monkey.
0: That's right. You were going to say spreadsheet guy, but spreadsheet monkey is the appropriate term. That's the (laughs) official term for what an analyst does.
1: So in what way can one both make money and make the world a better place?
0: Well, look, if doing good in the world is part of your business model, then you don't have to separate the two. Let me just give you one example of this. One investment that we've made is Lyft, which years ago seemed like a joke. It seemed like Uber is going to roll them over and break them into pieces. But what's really interesting is starting in about early 2017, there was this delete Uber campaign when Mm -hmm. it was started being revealed that Uber's, particularly their internal employee philosophy for how they treated employees, their corporate culture, was a big turnoff for a lot of people. And Lyft gained tremendous market share during that period just because Lyft's brand, their friendliness, their culture, both internally and externally, is a little bit more friendly than Uber's. And look, the products are identical. The apps look the same. You're (laughs) hailing the same drivers. Like, this is not Coke versus Pepsi. This is Coke versus Coke. They're, the products are identical. Hilarious. And But Lyft gained a lot of market share just because they're a little bit better company. They treat their employees a little bit better. They're a nicer company. And that was enough to, again, gain a competitive advantage. So doing good, being nice to people was not just something that they say, hey, we're doing this because it makes us feel good and we like that. It's actually an economic competitive advantage. One other company, something like Beyond Meat that we've also invested in, is basically saying, hey, we can make burgers that don't have any meat and they are plant-based, so good at making these that the majority of people, if they're in a burger with a bun and cheese and lettuce, et cetera, the majority of people cannot tell the difference between a real burger. And they're doing better for the planet because we're not slaughtering animals, environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's no sacrifice on the customer's end. If you're making people sacrifice what you're doing in a Boca burger or something like that, there's a sacrifice put in <laughs> it's cardboard then it's not going to be an economic competitive advantage because you're asking people to sacrifice. If you can tell your customers, hey, you don't have to sacrifice. This tastes good and it's better. You're going to attract the most loyal customers, employees, et cetera, et cetera. So it's using your ability to do good as part of your business model rather than asking someone to make a sacrifice in order to do good.
1: There goes my six-figure Boca Burger sponsorship, Morgan. Thanks a whole bunch <laughs> for that. We had a trash Well, that was,
0: that, was, that was their <laughs> whole marketing budget. So I don't, that's... <laughs>
1: Okay, so not having a jerk CEO and making plants bleed, those are two ways to have a good solid business.
0: You'd be surprised how far those two things go.
1: I like the veggie burgers. They've made huge strides in the past year.
0: Veggie burgers have been around for decades. This is not something new. It's just that years ago, they were distinctly a veggie burger. They made no attempt to taste or look or feel like a burger because they couldn't do it. It really took some of the new technology that's come across and people don't want to use the word technology for their food. I know that's that's kind of a turnoff, but the new innovations that have taken place that truly make it taste and feel and look like real meat.
1: Yeah, they're good. I dig them. So let's talk about the book. The new book's called The Psychology of Money. It's selling like crazy. I read it. I thought it was fantastic. You start the book by saying the aim of the book is to use short stories to convince you that soft skills are more important than the technical side of money. What do you mean by that?
0: I think as we typically look at money and how we are taught about money, taught about finance or investing to the extent that it is taught in schools, which is minimal to begin with, but to the extent that it is, it is taught and we think about money as a math-based field, like it's something close to physics where there are formulas and rules and laws and data, and we take the data, we put it into the formula, it gives us the right answer, we all go out and do the right answer, and then everyone's happy. That's how we think about it. And that's how math and physics works. Two plus two is four for everyone. No matter what generation you're from or where you live in the world, it's always the same. It's a very clear cut answer. Money, I think, is different though, because doing well with money, whether it is your personal finance or investing, doing well with money has little to do with what you know and a lot to do with how you behave. And what I mean by that is, look, you can be the smartest person in the world. You can have a PhD in finance from MIT. You can know all the formulas, all the data, all the charts. But if you lose your cool, if you lose your temper, if you don't manage your relationship with greed and fear, particularly in moments like March of 2020, when the market was melting down, (laughs) or 2008, or 1999, these moments where it feels like the world is going off the rails. If you don't manage your temper, your emotions during those periods, none of the analytical intelligence that you have matters at all. There are very few fields where it's like that, where it's not that behavior is the single most important part of investing. I think that's true. But more importantly, it has the ability to neutralize the analytical skills that you have. And maybe there's some analogy here to being a doctor as well, where you can be the smartest doctor in the world. You can understand exactly how the human body works. But if you have such a bad bedside manner with your patients that your patients don't trust you or they refuse to come back to you, none of it matters. So Medicine is probably this other field where the behavioral side of it is so important, but it's easy to overlook. Behavior is easy to overlook because it's not analytical. We can't summarize it into charts and formulas that you can memorize, things that seem like they are fact-based. It's the soft, mushy side of a topic that is easy to sweep it under the rug. And since we have, by and large, swept under the rug in finance and in investing, we still suffer from a lot of the same issues with money, whether it is our relationship with greed and fear. We're asking, what do we want out of money? What is the purpose of gaining more wealth? Seems like a kind of mushy philosophical topic, and I guess it is, but it's so fundamentally important in able to do well with money over time.
1: Because each of us is our own human being with our own goals and dreams and timelines and family priorities. It's not just a universal quadratic equation that I can apply that what is right for Paul is right for Morgan.
0: That's exactly right. I mean, the things that I do with my money, I know for a fact that other people who I admire, smart people, would look at what I do and say, that's crazy. Why would you do that? And my answer is, I don't need to justify it to you, what I do with my money, <laughs> these, these things on a spreadsheet. I do it because it's what makes sense to me and it helps me sleep at night. And my wife and I came together and said, this is what we want to do. I've made this point that people do not make financial decisions on a spreadsheet. They make them at the dinner table with their family where they're trying to figure out what do they want in life? What are their goals? What worries them? What keeps them up at night? What's going to help them sleep a little bit better? And that is different for me than it is for you, than it is for everyone else. A lot of this is just driven by the generations that we're from, the countries that we grew up in, the regions of the country that we grew up in. If you grew up during the Great Depression, you went through the rest of your life with a permanently altered view about risk and debt that people who did not go through the Great Depression, like you and I did not cannot fathom. We can try to put ourselves in their shoes and learn from them, but we don't have the emotional scar tissue that someone who went through that does. You know, This is especially true for people who were alive and growing up in Europe after World War II, which was devastated and bombed into rubble in many parts of Europe. If you lived through that tragedy, that destruction, that despair, you are left with a sense of risk and your relationship with money and your relationship with safety and security. That is very hard for, I think, most Americans who did not live through that it's very hard for us to fathom. And that is why, by and large, to me, the best explanation why Europe's, I'm generalizing here, why Europeans have had a much higher demand for social safety net, things like universal healthcare and employment benefits than Americans have. It's because their experiences over the last century, given the two world wars, were so incredibly different than anything we experienced in the United States.
1: Interesting. So as a financial pundit, your thoughts and actions are probably held up more than the average individuals are. So You can still make the argument to say that mathematically it might be the wrong decision to have a mortgage, but emotionally you feel like having a mortgage paid off makes you sleep better at night and that makes that the right decision for you.
0: Yeah. There's this point that I make in the book that took me years to figure out. It's not very complicated, but it was just kind of this light bulb moment for me that we are trained to try to make rational decisions with our money and we are told to make rational decisions. Don't do irrational things. You want to make the rational decision. And I just think that's wrong. I think we should aim to be reasonable with our money because there are a lot of things that look rational on paper and make sense in a spreadsheet, but they don't fit for your personality, for your goals, for what you actually want out of your money. The example that I gave in the book was my wife and I paid off our mortgage a couple of years ago, which is the worst financial decision we've ever <laughs> made because you can get a fixed rate, 2.9% mortgage, 30-year mortgage, It's the cheapest money you'll ever get. We could have invested that money in the stock market and earned a higher return. I cannot justify it on a spreadsheet. It's the worst financial decision. I think it's the best money decision that we've ever made, though. It's the one thing that we've done with our money where my wife and I, after we did it, we looked at each other and high-fived and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe we did this. This house is ours. No one can take it from us. We have safety security for the kids. Everything's going to be okay. It's not a rational thing. I can't There's even times when I tell the story that people are like, well, what about, you know, you could have done this. How do you justify this? And I'm like, no, 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 I can't justify it. I'm not going to try to explain it to you other than the fact that it made us feel good, made us high five each other and helps us sleep at night. And that to me was a big breakthrough that like what I want out of my money is not to do the technically right thing that the textbooks tell me to. What I want out of my money is to look at my kids, look at my family and say, look, because my wife and I have worked hard. We're going to have a better life than we otherwise would because we have this level of safety and security. It's also important for me to point out that that decision would not be true for everyone. I'm not recommending people go out and pay off their mortgage if they can, unless it's right for them. There are other people for whom, if they did that, would not be able to look themselves in the mirror in the morning because it feels like they're being wasteful with their money, et cetera. One is that aiming to be reasonable instead of rational, I think, is the best goal for everyone. And also realizing that equally informed and intelligent people can come to vastly different decisions of what is right to do with their money, because everyone has a different tolerance for risk and reward, different goals, different emotions, different periods of their life where they're going to want different things out of their money.
1: All right. So the book is about investing, but it's also about the tricks our brains and hearts play on us with regard to money. One of those tricks that our brains play on us is that humans don't define our affluence in the absolute, but relative to others. How does that mess us up?
0: And this should make a lot of sense when I say it, but what matters with your money is not how much money you have, it's the gap between what you have and what you expect. And if your expectations grow at the same level of your income and your net worth over time, if you're lucky enough to have a rising income, rising wealth, if your expectations grow just as fast, you are never going to feel like you are better off. So we look, we always talk about how do we raise our income? How do we get wealthier? What are the best investments that we should make so that we can have more money, more wealth? And of course that's important. That's a good conversation. But we also have to realize that that conversation doesn't necessarily matter in terms of making us feel like we're better off unless we're going out of a way to manage our expectations as well. But there are people who earn a million dollars a year, $10 million a year, who don't feel as wealthy as people who make $50,000 a year. And to state the obvious, if you make a million dollars a year and spend $1.1 million, you are in a deeper financial hole than someone who makes $50,000 a year and spends 30 and is happy spending 30. It's all about your expectations. And this has been true. For the whole economy, if we look over the last 50 or 60 years, we think of the 1950s and 60s as kind of the golden age of middle-class prosperity. This is when a middle-class could earn a good, dignified income and raise a family, good middle-class income, middle-class family. But the median income in the United States, adjusted for inflation, is double what it is today than it was in the 1950s. We were half as wealthy at the medium inflation-adjusted level in the 1950s than we are today. I think the reason that we have so much nostalgia for this era, going back to the 1950s, even though we were half as wealthy back then, most of us were, is that our expectations have grown faster than our incomes have. So we look back at this and it seems like, oh, you know, it would be so great if we could go back to the prosperity of those days. But I think what has really shifted is just our expectations. One way to summarize that is, look, the median square footage of a new house in the United States has increased from about 900 square feet to 2,300 square feet since the 1950s. There's been a big inflation just in terms of what we expect and what is normal, what is average. So it's really important. If you want to be happy with your money, you have to go out of your way to manage your expectations. It's a hard thing to do. It's so natural for everyone to think that if you just have a little bit more, you're going to reach this level of happiness. You really have to go out of your way to tamp that down. And I think the the hardest but most important financial skill is getting the goalpost to stop moving. It's important to have goals and have expectations. And look, I have my own goals that are higher than what I have right now. This is not a plea for people to live like a monk and you know, just you know, really suppress all their desires, but you have to have some control over your expectations and give your expectations as much effort and thought as you do your ability to raise your income and raise your wealth over time.
1: Okay. So expectations exist at both the individual and at the societal levels. How we manage those would be two totally different things. So first of all, how do I manage my expectations as a person or a household? And secondly, how do we acknowledge this very natural human instinct to compare what we have to others and help society see that it's okay that there's some degree of inequality?
0: One thing that has worked for me, worked is actually the wrong term because it's so difficult to do this, but in this revelation that I've had, I talk about this in the book, is when I was in college, I worked at a very fancy hotel in Los Angeles. I was a valet. I was parking people's cars. I did it for four years. It's a wonderful job. And it dawned on me one day that when someone drove into the hotel in a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, I would not look at the driver and say, wow, that guy is cool. What I would do is I would picture myself in the car and I would think if I was driving that car, people would think I'm cool. And there was this huge breakdown, this huge irony in this idea that I was not paying any attention to the driver, but I assumed that if I was a driver, people would pay attention to me. I've called it the man in the car paradox. I think this is true for people who have nice homes, go on nice vacations, et cetera, et cetera. It's not that people don't admire that stuff. It's that they bypass admiring you, and they assume that people would admire them if they had that kind of stuff. Maybe it's this realization that no one is thinking about your possessions or your status in the world more than you are. And however much benefit you think you are getting from the nice stuff, which is a lot of the drivers of our aspirations. If we have nice stuff, people will respect me and they will think I'm important. They will think I'm successful, et cetera, et cetera. Do you realize how fragile that relationship actually is and how so much of what you are aspiring for is not going to get you what you think it is? then that to me has been the way to tame my expectations. It's so natural for me to think, and I still do, and I'm not going to claim that I'm some sort of master at this, but look, if I were to have the Bentley, the Ferrari, the house on the ocean, that people would respect me more and think that I'm more important than I am. I always have to stop and tell myself, no, that's probably not the case. That if I were to have the house on the ocean, the people who came over to visit me would probably just think to themselves, wow, if I had this house, people would think I'm cool. So that's what it's been for me. You have to always remind yourself of that, that however much benefit socially you think you are going to get from this stuff, there's probably a fraction of what you are actually going to get out of it.
1: Are you able to manage that same instinct when it comes to things like how many copies of your new book you're going to sell, how many magazine covers you're going to be on, whatever the 2020 equivalent of a magazine cover is? You know, how much attention you're going to get, how many followers you have. Can you manage your appetites in that realm of the world also?
0: Not very well. I mean, I I, I would love (laughs) to tell you, oh, yes, I can totally do that. And here's how I did it. Here's my trick for you. It's the hardest thing in the world. The ability to tame your expectations with that, whether it is Twitter followers or book sales is so difficult. I mean, the book's been out for about two and a half weeks as you and I are recording this right now. It has sold significantly more than I expected. And you would think I would be over the moon with that. And look, it's great. I'm excited about that. But as soon as that happened, my expectations just shifted up to the next level. Oh, what if it could sell this much or this right, many? Or right. what if I can match the sales of this other book? I've just completely moved the goalpost. If there's anything that I feel like I am qualified to discuss this about, is because I acknowledge that is the case. It's not that I can necessarily fix it, but I know that's what's going on in my head. And I think if we can all go out of our way to realize stuff like that, that if you are to get a promotion, a raise, you do well in the stock market, whatever it is in your life, you have some sort of win at, that during that win, you stop and go out of your way to think about your expectations and how can you suppress them? Because it is the gap between your expectations and your results that is actually going to make you happier. That's what you are actually striving for.
1: So let's take the issue of societal expectations. Let's come at that through a different lens. You mentioned in your book that even Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, who happens to be a billionaire, he can't bring himself to describe himself as rich. He says he's well-to-do. Just that statement feels dated, but he doesn't feel rich because of the company that he keeps. If Lloyd Blankfein can't acknowledge that he's a wealthy person, how can any of us be satisfied with our lot financially in life?
0: I think it just goes to show the issue with this, and what I wrote about is Lloyd Blankfein, who's worth a billion dollars. He is not even in the top ten richest people in his own apartment building.
1: Are, <laughs> He's got to go down market a little bit. Help himself. You got to go
0: down. There are at least twelve people in his apartment building who have significantly higher net worth than him. So it's all about <laughs> the people around us, and just this realization that people don't measure their well-being relative to what they have; they measure their well-being relative to those around them, and this is true in both directions. There's this quote from Lyndon Johnson who grew up extremely poor who said poverty was so common when I was a kid that we didn't think it had a name. That was just what they had around them. Mm. So it's true in both directions. How can we get around that? There's a story that a friend of mine told me years ago where he used to go to Vegas every year on a gambling trip with his dad. And one day they asked the blackjack dealer, they said, hey, what games in Vegas do you play? You're a dealer. You know the ins and outs. What games do you play here? And the dealer looked at him and said, The only way to win in Vegas is to not play the games. That's the only way to do well in this town. And I think that's true for social comparison. The only way that you can win and do well and feel good about your money is to not play the social comparison game. Not easy to do, but a lot of things that are worthwhile in life are just that. They're not easy to do. It's different for everyone. It's different at different phases of your life. Because look, if you are a young person who is trying to find a mate, trying to find a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, or a wife the importance of your social signaling is a lot more important than if you are someone who has been happily married for 20 or 30 years and doesn't have to put forth as much of a show in order to show their worth in the world. So it's different at all levels and I don't think it's ever going to go away. It will never go away. Look, it you know John D Rockefeller is the richest person in human history. His net worth adjusted for inflation is something like 3 or 400 billion dollars. But Rockefeller never had penicillin. He never had sunscreen. He never had Advil. Those things were not invented by the time he died. But no one today should be able to say that a low-income American who has penicillin and sunscreen should feel like they're better off than John Rockefeller because that's just not how people's heads work. People always measure their well-being relative to what other people around them have and what other people around them expect. So I think it's never going to go away at the societal level. Never. I mean, if you look at how we live today relative to you know, forget 50 or 100 years ago, but even 20 or 30 years ago, when you know things like the survival rates for various cancers and heart disease were significantly worse 20 or 30 years ago than they are today. But our expectations have moved just as much. And there are new legitimate problems for us to deal with. So I'm of the belief, and maybe this is kind of a cynical view, but I think it's really true that people as a society will not gain that much happiness at the aggregate level over time. There was probably a happiness boost as we moved from like the middle ages into the modern world where we just have more average creature comforts than we do in previous times. But in terms of gaining happiness with What we have in terms of social comparison, I don't think as an aggregate group, we are ever going to get much happier than we are right now. And The best we can try to do is at the individual level, at the family level, to try to manage, go out of your way to manage your expectations and realize that what you have now, if it's more than you had before, even if it's not as much as other people have, or if other people have what you do, going out of your way to try to find what actually makes people happy, which is a different topic that I think actually ties into this really well. To me, the question has always been, okay... If the fancy car, if the big house is not what I'm going to do with my money because of the shifts in social comparison, if that's going to sap the joy out of that, then what do I do with my money? If I'm not going to buy nice stuff, what's the purpose of it? To me, the answer has always been using money to control my time, using money to give me a little bit more flexibility, give me options in my life for where I work, where I live, who I can hang out with so that I can do what I want, when I want, with who I want for as long as I want. Waking up every morning and just being able to say, I can do whatever I want today. I think that level of flexibility and controlling your time is something that you can do with your money that will give you a permanent lasting level of happiness in a way that buying goods and things and stuff by and large don't because we so quickly get used to whatever benefit they give us.
1: That sounds nice, but how does somebody who's stuck in the middle of a career with very high fixed costs, kids in private school, lake house, et cetera, how do you make that shift?
0: Well, it's a fixed cost that got in your way in the first place. That's your problem. That's the issue. And I don't mean that flippantly. I think that is so true for a lot of people that if you are viewing money through the simple equation of, look, every penny of debt that you have means a portion of your future time is owned by someone else. And every penny of savings that you have is a portion of your future that you own and you control. If you view it that way, then I think people will be much less willing to go into debt in the first place. The whole trick of finance, the PhD in finance, the black belt in finance, I think Comes down to two points. It's living below your means and being patient. Living below your means is how you build savings, and being patient is how you build wealth in the stock market or with your investments. It's those two things. So when people come to you and say, and of course we hear this all the time, I can't retire early. I can't do this because I have a huge mortgage and student debts and auto loans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not a fun answer that people want to hear, but that's the issue. That's not the contingency that's getting your way. That's the whole issue that you need to solve for. So if you view it through those terms, and there are a lot of people who are kind of stuck in over their head and finding themselves in a situation that is hard to just get out of in any sort of quick way. But I think that's the brutal truth of finance, that if you are not living below your means and not saving money, then you don't really have much of a chance of building that money into something substantial that's going to give you control of your time.
1: Along those lines, you write that you didn't want big returns as much as you wanted to be, quote, financially unbreakable.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think if you look at history, not just in the United States but around the world, the world breaks about once per decade on average. This year, twenty twenty, with COVID nineteen, this has obviously been a global breakage. But also the two thousand eight financial crisis, September eleventh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the inflation of the seventies and eighties, JFK assassinated, Vietnam, World War two, the Great Depression, Pearl Harbor, etc. Every ten years or so, the world falls apart in a way that is surprising, catches people off guard, and does a lot of damage, and. If you view compounding with your investments that are in the stock market as something that is going to require many decades of growth in order to grow it into something that is very meaningful and life-changing for you, then what is so important in investing is that that you can remain standing, remain in the game when the world breaks, and just make sure that rather than trying to maximize for returns this year and saying, hey, what stocks are going to do well this year, this month, what I want to know is how can I remain standing and keep investing for the next 30 years. That's where the big gains come from in investing. That's where you can really move the needle in life. So, rather than trying to say, you know, maximize returns, to me, it's just all about endurance. I think endurance is the single most important but easy to overlook aspect in finance. I make this point in the book that if you look at Warren Buffett's net worth, so Warren Buffett has been investing since he's 11 years old, uh, he's now 90, and his net worth is roughly $90 billion. of his net worth came after his 55th birthday, and more than 90% came after his 60th birthday. More than 90% came in his elderly years. And that is just how compounding works. Compounding, if you're thinking about the growth of your investments, is something where you have a little bit of growth in the early years, some decent growth in the middle years. And then after you've been investing for 30, 40, 50 years, if you can do that, that's when the growth just explodes and you really start getting some extreme results out of that. So if I want the biggest returns, and this is kind of a paradox, it doesn't seem intuitive. If I want the biggest returns over the course of my life, I should not be focusing on what are the highest returns I can earn this year or next year or even the next 10 years. What I should be focusing on is how can I earn decent returns that I can stick with for the longest period of time? Not intuitive, again, because look, if I am a passive investor in index funds, the question I get all the time is, why don't I want to do better than that? Don't I know investors who can earn higher returns? who know what the economy is going to do this year, who can pick the best tech stocks? My answer is yes. I think those people do exist, truly. But what I'm focusing on is how can I earn the most stable returns for the longest period of time, not what can I maximize in a short period of time. So it's not an intuitive thing to think about until you really dig into the math of compounding. And then you realize that the single most important variable to your long-term investing success is simply
1: endurance. Okay. I get what you're saying. 30 years, you got to think in decades, right? Not in weeks, not in quarters. But you also write that an underpinning of psychology is that we're poor forecasters of our future selves, that we are going to change and we're going to change in ways that we cannot anticipate. So how do I use that knowledge to help me make better decisions?
0: There's this interesting theory that I love in psychology called the end of history illusion, which basically says that every one of us is aware of how much we've changed in the past. I'm 36 years old. If I look at myself when I was 26, I'm a completely different person today. If I look at myself when I was 16, I'm a completely 100% different person than I was back then. I'm aware of how much my values, my goals have changed. But if I were to forecast, how will I feel about the world when I'm 46? What will my goals be when I'm 56? By and large, I and most people will say, I'm not going to change that much. That's on a breakdown. We know how much we've changed in the past. We don't think we're going to change much in the future, but we will. The odds are that I will change just as much from the time I'm 36 to 46 as I did from 26 to 36. You go through a lot of change during the course of your life in terms of what you want, what you expect, what your goals are, et cetera. To me, the way around this, to get around this, is to avoid the extreme ends of financial planning. People who are either extreme savers and are living like monks and living on nothing to these people who are in the fire movement, saving 90% of their income. That's one extreme end. And the people who are on the YOLO end of let's go spend everything. We don't need to save. You only live once. Let's go for it. Spend all of our money going into debt. That's the other extreme end. I think either one of those extreme ends increase the odds that you are going to regret whatever you did in the future once you change in the future. People who saved everything, by the time that they are older and their bodies are breaking down so they can't go hike the Himalayas, might regret not spending a little bit more money and having fun when they were young. People who spend everything when they are young, by the time they get into their 40s and 50s and they're raising kids and saving for college, saving for retirement, might also look back and regret at how frivolous they were with their money. So I think there's this great quote from Jeff Bezos where he says, the best way to think about life is just the regret minimization framework. Which is when you're laying on your deathbed, you want to look back and regret as few things as possible. I think avoiding the extreme ends of financial planning on both ends of it is how you can reduce the odds of regret to the greatest extent possible.
1: Why is it important for an individual to choose their financial game and stick to that game as opposed to watching what their neighbors are up to?
0: I think it's just important to realize, and this is not intuitive, even for professional investors, that investors play completely different games, but we're all playing on the same field. Here's what I mean by that. There's one stock market. So the price of Apple stock is the same for me. It's the same for you, same for everyone else. We'd all go out and buy Apple stock at the same price. But we all play different games. There are day traders. There are high-frequency traders, which are computers that are trading for the next second. There are people who are fund managers who are investing for the next month or the next quarter. There are people who are retiring who want to invest for the next 10 or 20 years. There are endowments who are truly thinking about investment returns over the next century. So we're all playing a very different game. And what's important is that a lot of problems in investing happen when investors take their cues from people who are playing a different game than you are. What I mean by that is this. If you turn on CNBC or any financial television, you will often hear someone say something along the lines of, you should buy Apple stock, or you should sell Tesla stock, something to that effect. And I always want to say, well, who are you talking to? Are you talking to a day trader? Are you talking to a widowed retiree? Like Those people have very different views on what is right to do with their money. And that's not the case if we're talking about a lot of other fields where there is one right answer for everyone. But since we're all playing different games, it's important to realize what game you're playing, investing strategy is, and making sure that you're only taking your cues, getting from people who are aware of your game and playing the same game as you are. There's this great quote that I love from a financial advisor named Tim Maurer who says, personal finance is more personal than it is finance. And that's so true for something like investing that we're all playing different games with different goals, different time horizons, different risk tolerances. Then advice that makes sense for you might be great for you and might be the worst advice in the world for me. And if we're not aware of what our goals are and what game we're more likely to get sucked into the games of other people, think like what happened in the late 1990s with tech stocks, where tech stocks were blowing up and surging day after day. That was driven by day traders. And it made perfect sense for them to own. Cisco stock in 1999, you know, five or 10% per day. It made sense for them to do it because they were day traders. They were just in it for the gains of today and tomorrow, and then they're going to get out. The danger happened when long term investors, people who are investing for the next 10 or 20 years, saw what was going on with Cisco stock and thought to themselves, oh, maybe these people know something that I don't. Maybe the stock is going up. People are buying because they know that the technology is so great. So maybe I should buy as well. So the stocks were being pushed up by day traders who were playing their own game. And then they tantalized and they incentivized and they caught the attention of long-term investors who were playing a different game. And it was the long-term investors who got influenced by the day traders who were left when everything unwound in
1: 2000. And there's the temptation to let other people's success influence what we believe is sufficient for ourselves. You recount a story about a party in Shelter Island given by a billionaire. Will you finish the anecdote?
0: Yeah. So the story was from the the late Vanguard founder, John Bogle. It's a party with the author Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller, and they're at the house of a very successful hedge fund manager. Kurt Vonnegut turns to Joseph Heller and says, you know, the hedge fund manager who owns this house made more money this year than you made in your novel Catch-22. And Joseph Heller says, that might be true, but I have something he will never have, and that is enough. And I think that concept of having enough money, again, is a very difficult skill in finance, But it is important for everyone because if you don't have a sense of enough, there are too many examples of people who will keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing for more until they end up either taking more risk or straight up breaking the rules. And I profile a couple of people, one of whom is Bernie Madoff, who everyone knows. He's famous for something that everyone is aware of, his Ponzi scheme. To me, what is so interesting about Bernie Madoff, though, and this is much less known than his Ponzi scheme, is that if you go back to the 1970s and 80s, Bernie Madoff was extremely successful in a legitimate way, not the fraud that he started later. But Bernie Madoff was a market maker, which is this business of matching buyers and sellers of stocks. And it was all legitimate. It was not a fraud. And he was making accounts upwards of $50 million per year from his legitimate business. But that was not enough to him. He looked at that and said, I want more. I want so much more. I'm so hungry for more that I'm going to start a Ponzi scheme so that I can get more. And it is fascinating for people like me and you and a lot of your readers to think that someone could make $50 million and find that so inadequate that they need to go out and scam their friends. And of course, that's a personality defect in its own. But it's this concept of never having enough that I think we can all learn from. And all of us need to have some sense of enough because it goes back to what we were discussing earlier. If you don't and your expectations always grow as fast as your means of your income and your wealth, you're never going to feel like you're going anywhere. Look, I have goals. My goals are ahead of what I have right now, but you have to have some sense of what I want in life. This is what's going to be enough. That is also part of why I'm a passive investor as well. and I'm not actively trying to go out there and pick the best stocks or figure out what the economy is doing. A lot of it is because, look, if I can dollar-cost average into index funds and hold them for 30 or 40 years, I will check every box of financial goals that I have and then some. So it's this idea of enough. There's a quote from Warren Buffett that I use in that chapter where he says, if you risk something that is important to you in order to gain something that is unimportant to you, that is foolish. It's just plain foolish. And I think that is kind of the basis of this idea of having enough. You can gain more in finance and in business by taking more risk. But if you are risking what you need in order to gain what you don't need, then what the hell are you doing? It doesn't make any sense to do that. So, look, we're all going to have a different view of enough, and that view might change over time in this sort of ironic way, but I think always having an idea of what you need to be happy in life, how much independence you need, how much social recognition you need, and having a well-tuned idea of enough is always so important for everybody.
1: What's the quote? Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Is that the term? I'm I think with? it's
0: bulls make money, bears make money, pigs get slaughtered. That's oh. the investing uh, version of it. Yeah.
1: There you go. Knowing what my definition of enough is means that I don't have to engage in risky trading behavior to try to reach some level of affluence that won't make me any happier.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, one of the ironies about this in the annual billionaires list, the Forbes billionaire list, the Bloomberg billionaires list, and it's not just turnover because people die and pass away. It's because people that have made a lot of money keep taking ever-increasing large bets until they lose money. I tell the story of a guy named Jesse who was, if you go back to the 19-teens and 1920s, was Buffett of his day. He was the most famous successful investor of his day. He even managed to short stocks, which is when you're betting on their decline, during the crash of 1929. He made the equivalent of $3 billion in one day. And this was the day that wiped out Wall Street was his most successful day ever. One of the richest men in the world because of the crash. He was so successful at investing. But the fascinating part of Jesse Livermore's story is that he never had any idea of enough in terms of the amount of risks that he took. So even huge successes... He just kept taking ever increasingly larger and larger bets, taking more risk, more risk with more leverage, more debt, kept swinging for the fences as hard as he could. And by the 1930s, Jesse Livermore, who was previously one of the richest men in the world, went broke and he died by suicide, which is also a well-known part of his story. But the takeaway from that to me is so important, which is that there's a big difference between getting rich and staying rich. They're two completely different skills. And you have people like Jesse Livermore who are very good at getting rich. And they had no skill whatsoever at staying rich. They had no idea what was enough. And I think that's true for everyone that you need both skills. And they're very different skills that often look like they contradict each other. That getting rich requires optimism and swinging for the fences, taking a risk, being bullish on the future. Staying rich requires having a well tuned sense of enough and being kind of pessimistic and almost paranoid about the short term. One way that I think you can summarize this for individual people is that I think a way to think about your finances is people should save like a pessimist and invest like an optimist. You need to be an optimist about the future with your investments and think that people are going to solve problems and figure things out. And that's going to create profits that accrue to investors over time. But you need to save like a pessimist and realize that, again, the world breaks about once per decade. And the world is a constant, never-ending chain of recessions and bear markets and now pandemics and these issues that we deal with that you need to be able to survive as an investor and be able to remain standing so that you can survive long enough to let compounding work so that you can actually invest like an optimist.
1: Early in the book, you share an anecdote about a rich guy who you observed when you were a valet at that fancy hotel in Los Angeles. And he made a game of literally throwing gold coins into the ocean. <laughs> and then surprise, surprise, he ended up broke. What was going on with that guy?
0: It was really fascinating. So when I was a valet at the hotel, there was this entrepreneur. I've changed some of the details of his identity, but he was extremely smart. In the technology space, he was an engineer, very, very intelligent. he had started and sold several businesses, very business minded had a great engineering mind in his ability to create these products and technology. But he had this relationship with money that was so fascinating to me, which was he had the greatest sense that i 've ever seen. To flaunt his money to everyone who either wanted to see it or did not want to see it. He always carried around this stack of $100 bills that was several inches thick, and he would just pull it out and show people and start throwing around. He was always bedazzled in diamond watches and diamond necklaces. He drove a Bentley. He was always telling people how much money he had. And one day he came to us, the valets, we were always running kind of these odd errands for him. He came to one of my coworkers, he pulled out his giant wad of $100 bills. He peeled off a stack of them, handed them to my coworker, and said, Go down the street to the jewelry store and buy me several gold coins. My friend went out and did it, came back with the gold coins. And this entrepreneur and his friends stood at the edge of the Pacific Ocean and started skipping the gold coins into the ocean like they were skipping stones. And they were trying to see who could skip it the farthest with these solid gold coins. And the stories that I have about this guy, like that's one of probably a dozen stories about things like that that he did with money. Just wanted to blow it and get rid of it in a way that I've never seen anyone else do. And I always wondered at the time, I mean, I was very young, I was 19 or 20 years old. But I remember watching that and just thinking, how long can this last? No matter how successful he is, how long can someone maintain that kind of behavior? And several years ago, I was talking to a friend who still knows this guy. And the answer was, not very long. He he ended up going bankrupt. (laughs) It'd be one thing if this was an idiot trust funder who had never earned the money, and he just didn't have the intelligence to keep it. But this was someone who was so intelligent by any of the traditional measures that we have. But his relationship with money was so poor that he ended up going broke, which is just another idea that doing well with money is not about what you know. It's not your intelligence. It's not what school you went to. It's not even how much money you make. It's about how you behave. And the behaviors that you have can completely override any sort of technical ability, technical intelligence that you have that we pay so much attention to.
1: Does writing about money remind you to be more grateful on a daily basis?
0: I think what writing about money does is it reminds me on a daily basis how difficult a topic it is. And even for someone like myself who thinks about this and writes about it full time, been doing that for my entire career, more than a decade, never a single article that I write about that doesn't remind me how difficult and nuanced and challenging this topic is because so much of what is important in investing is counterintuitive. Another thing with the psychological side of investing where I don't think that many people can fix their poor behaviors with money. Because it's not something that we can just learn about and read about and say, oh, now I understand how to do it better, so I can just go out and fix that. What we're dealing with with the behavioral side of investing is dopamine and cortisol (laughs) and these hormones that we, we cannot just read something in a book and expect to feel like we've fixed that. So I think rather than fixing your investing behaviors, assuming that you can fix them, I think it's just much better to embrace who you are and embrace your flaws that all of us have. And rather than thinking you can learn from your past mistakes realizing that your past mistakes might just be indicative of who you are and they are indicative of your likely future behavior as well. And therefore, just kind of managing your finances, situating your finances for that behaviors that you have. So if you're someone who panicked in March of this year or panicked in 2008 when the market was really declining, if you are one of those people, I think you should probably just embrace that you have a lower risk tolerance than you might otherwise want. And therefore, maybe you should have less of your money in stocks and risky assets. Because you've proven to yourself that you do panic when the world is falling apart. And rather than assuming that you won't do that next time, I think you should assume that you will and just try to prepare for that rather than thinking that you can fix it.
1: So instead of financial advisors, do we all need psychologists who have the passwords to our accounts?
0: In all seriousness, I think the main role of a financial advisor is to be your financial psychologist. And the main reason (laughs) that is, particularly these days, is because the technical knowledge of how much money can I contribute to my 401k? What's the best way to strategize for social security? All that information is free and online. It's not that financial advisors have all that information that no one else has. But I think what a financial advisor can do that really adds value, particularly on the investing side, is yes, being your psychologist. There's a financial advisor who writes for the New York Times named Carl Richards who says, the role of a financial advisor is to put a gap between you and stupid. (laughs) <laughs> They're trying to take you and your stupid decisions and just get in front of it and say, hey, hey, what, what are we doing here? Let's think about this in another way. So I think, yes, that is the main role of a good financial advisor.
1: I confess that on March 16th or so, there were calls made from my phone to my financial advisor with the intent of selling as much as possible. And I'm glad I was not allowed to do that.
0: It happens. Yeah. It's tempting for everyone. And it's even tempting for people who don't think that when things are going well, if someone would ask them, hey, how would you feel if the market fell 30%? A lot of those people will just kind of extrapolate how they feel in that given moment and say, oh, that would be okay. I would view it as an opportunity. I'd probably do some buying. But then when they actually experience it, when it is actually March 15th and the Dow is down 10% and we're looking at like we're heading into the the second Great Depression where it's not only economic crisis, but we're all also putting our health at serious jeopardy and ourselves or people who we love might die as well. When you're in those emotions, it is very hard to anticipate how you're actually going to respond. So yeah, there are a lot of people like you who may have known what was the right thing to do, but in the moment you start looking at it and saying, I don't like this. This doesn't feel right. I want
1: to sell. (laughs) It didn't feel real good, but thank God it turned around. I mean, hopefully permanently, who knows? We'll see. Right. Who knows? So you spend the last chapter of the book talking about what's happened to the economic structure of the United States since say 1955. And it's not a political statement. It is a statement of fact. Has our societal affluence made us weaker?
0: I don't necessarily know if it's made us weaker, but I think to summarize that chapter, and it's actually the longest chapter in the book, it's the postscript. But to summarize it really quickly, it's this. In the years after World War II, the United States tended to grow fairly evenly. There were people who were much richer than others, but the economic classes tended to grow together. If wealthy people's income rose by 10%, poor people's incomes also rose by 10%. And the lives that we lived were much more similar than we were today. Rich people drove Cadillacs, poor people drove Chevys. The difference between them two was not that great. It was just much more of a more compact society. And that gave us the idea again that the people around you are a good influence for what you should expect. And then as we got into the 1980s, the classes started growing apart. And we started what I think is the biggest social economic story of the last 40 years, which is the rise of income inequality, where you had a much smaller group of people who got extremely wealthy while a lot of other people, particularly in the last 30 years, their income stagnated or declined. And the issue that brought up was this. If you have this idea, that the people who you see around you should influence what you expect. Well, now you had a group of legitimately very wealthy people who were going out and buying very nice cars, very big homes, sending their kids to private schools that I think inflated the aspirations and the expectations of everyone else, of everyone else whose incomes did not rise over the last 30 or 40 years. And they closed that gap If they said, well, look, if this rich guy can send his kids to private school, I want to send my kids to private school. But since they didn't have the income to actually pay the tuition, they made up the gap with debt. And I think that has been the biggest explanation for the huge rise in household debt that took place over the last 40 years, is that a large part of society was trying to keep up with a small part of society that could actually afford the things that they were buying. So I think that has been kind of the biggest arc of the American economy over the last 60 or so years, and it's playing out today. You know, Obviously, the debt side of it was the cause of the 2008 financial crisis. But I think even if you look at Brexit or things like even Donald Trump, it is by and large reflective of a group of society who is looking at the economy and looking at how things are working and just saying, this isn't working for me. Whatever has happened in the last 40 years, this ain't working. Some people are getting very rich. Some people aren't. Of course, there are other elements involved to it than that. But I think that is probably the broadest explanation of the trajectory of the United States since the end of World War II.
1: So putting on my Milton Friedman hat for just a second, I might argue that everyone is better off, the poor included. They have Advil after all. So why is it important to recognize the danger of inequality and what is that danger?
0: This is the point that I make in the book that is really difficult. I don't have a view, and I'm not just trying to escape it. I truly don't necessarily have <laughs> a formed view on whether the inequality is good or bad or whether we should do something about it. It's a very complicated topic that I'm not going to get into. All I care about is that it happened and it changed how people think. So whether we can mm-hmm. say something is morally good, philosophically good, I don't care about that. All I care about is that there is a huge segment of society who feels like they've been screwed and it is changing their behaviors, changing their views, changing how they vote. So rather than getting academic about whether it's right or wrong, I just care that it happened and wonder what is going to stop that social economic dynamic, if anything. So to me, it's more just being fascinated about it rather than having some sort of prescription on what to do about it.
1: All right. Last question. How do you define wealth?
0: I think wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and do whatever you want. And for a lot of people, including myself, most mornings I'm going to wake up and want to go to work. So it's not necessarily that you have so much money that you can do nothing. It's so much money that you can do anything you want. Warren Buffett was once describing how much money he's going to leave for his kids when he dies. What is his kid's inheritance going to be? And he said he's going to leave his kids enough money so that they can do anything, but not so much that they can do nothing. And I thought that was a great way of describing it. To me, Like the peak amount of wealth that you can have is just being able to wake up every morning and do whatever you want regardless of what that is, it's just having control over your time, control over your schedule, having options and being able to do what you want, when you want with who you want for as long as you want it.
1: And that's not an exact number. It's a ratio of needs to resources.
0: That's right. It's all about your
1: expectations. That's awesome. Morgan, I appreciate the time. The book was great. It's called the psychology of money. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Most of my work is on
0: Twitter. That's everything I write and a lot of my thoughts that I'm thinking. My screen name is Morgan Housel, my first and
1: last name. We will have links to that in the show notes. And Housel is H-O-U-S-E-L. Morgan, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. That was a lot of fun. Thank you, Morgan, for taking time to be a part of the show. Wow. So many important things that he touched on. And I read a lot of books. I know I tell you each of them is awesome and they are in their own way. But this one, you don't have to be an investment nerd to realize What he's talking about it's not about knowing the black shoals formula it's about knowing yourself it's about being conscious and aware of what you're trying to do in the long term and not freaking out when you see the headlines in the paper i made quotation marks you can't see me but i did those little air quotes in the paper or on google news every morning so let's get to takeaways number one as we talked about in the introduction our brains play tricks on us And if we don't play our own game, we will fall prey to trying to keep up with the Joneses and wanting more than we need. And so playing your own game is something that really stood out to me with Morgan in the conversation. And as I read his book and contemplated what it meant, be your own person, know what's important to you. Don't worry about what the Joneses are up to. And you're gonna be not just happier on a day-to-day basis, but you're gonna be wealthier over time because you're not gonna, fall for the allure of the short-term shiny object. Secondly, enoughness. It's a closely related topic, but one that deserves its own bullet point. And I have these bullet points written in front of me, as you may have deduced. But anyway, enoughness is a huge concept that comes up a lot in the show. We talked about it with Ron Lieber in I think episode number four, and it was a key theme in his book, The Opposite of Spoiled, which if you haven't picked up to read about how to raise kids with values, man, it's a great read. Enoughness is something that is key to our happiness, that if you wake up with $50 million and you don't feel as if you have enough, you're going to be 10 times as miserable as a person with $50,000 who feels and believes they have enough and actually does have their life dialed into that. Now, certainly if you're rolling into retirement with only 50 grand in the bank, you're going to have some challenges. You will not be able to not work for a long time. But the point being is that enoughness isn't necessarily about how much money you have. It's a concept of what you have versus what you need. And that's something worth spending a little time thinking about your situation, your family, and where are you on the enoughness scale. Lastly, this keeps coming up too. the key to happiness is lower expectations. Is that kind of bizarre? In business school, we had a big exam coming up and we were all stressed out. People would be like, eh, just lower your expectations. You're not going to get an A. You don't have to study all night. Just accept the C plus or whatever it was that I was going to earn. And it was kind of funny, but I think it demonstrates an important point that when you talk about lower expectations being the key to happiness, that doesn't mean giving up is the key to happiness, it means understanding that it's not about having the most or the biggest or the most expensive or whatever. It's just being happy with what you have. And that comes back to enoughness. What's really interesting about this key to happiness being lower expectations is that this continues to come up. It came up with Oliver Berkman. He was the guy who wrote the book, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which we talked about a couple of months ago on this here podcast. It came up with Barry Schwartz, the author of The Paradox of Choice, who talked about how having a thousand choices for condiments or blue jeans will only raise your expectations and make choosing that much harder? It came up with Morgan just now, and it came up with Jonathan Rausch, who's the author of The Happiness Curve which is all about how our happiness plunges from early adulthood into middle age until it bottoms out and starts to recover in our late forties or early fifties. When we start to come to terms with one, the fact that we're going to die, but two the fact that it's okay, we didn't get everything we ever wanted, or it's okay that we did get all those things. And eh, it doesn't feel quite as glorious as we thought it would, but we eventually come to terms with that and it's all right that you know we don't feel like every day is, as Dennis Miller said, life in Hef's jacuzzi. And that's all right. Lower expectations. Think about those things for the rest of the week, friends. Lower expectations, enoughness, and playing your own games. If you have a chance, pick up Morgan's book. There's a link to his website in the show notes. Click that. If you have a few minutes, click the link to rate the podcast. Also, I sure would appreciate your thoughts and how we can continue to improve this Shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Mike Carano, make me sound smart.